Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and company founders who are doing amazing things in their industry. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Upfront. I'm Derek Beer, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Michelle Chula Lipkin is the Executive Director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, or NAMELY for short. Michelle has helped NAMELY grow to be the preeminent media literacy education association here in the United States. And she also launched the first ever Media Literacy Week in the country, which is now in its ninth year. She's developed strategic partnerships with companies such as Thomson Reuters, Meta, YouTube, and Nickelodeon, to name a few. And she's overseen six national conferences and has done countless appearances at conferences and in the media regarding the importance of media literacy education. Her passion for media literacy education stems from a very personal place, which we'll talk more about in this episode. So, what is media literacy? We'll find out this and so much more about Michelle's love of baseball, theater, and why she looks at failure in a positive way. And welcome to the show, Michelle. Uh, so glad to have you here on Upfront. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. We're going to go back to the beginning and learn more about you as a person and the choices, events, lifestyle, and all of that that has helped to get you to where you are today. But before we do that, I want to come right out of the gate and ask you to give us the elevator speech version of what the National Association for Media Literacy Education is, which um, we'll refer to as namely on the show. Um, that's how you pronounce it, right? Yes, it is, Namely. Okay, so what is Namely? So I'm the executive director of Namely. I've been at the organization since 2012, and we are a nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to see media literacy education highly valued and widely practiced as an essential life skill. So what does that mean? Um, essentially, we are the biggest organization for media literacy education around the globe, and our commitment is to really um, ensure that people today have the skills that they need to navigate the world in which we live. Um, and as you know, the media ecosystem is quite complicated these days. So we are here to try to look at how we're teaching the skills that people need, how we're making um, aware, you know, awareness about the skills, and how we are creating kind of a movement to ensure that the these skills are an essential part of life. And so we do that through a lot of our work is through educators. And so that's the core of our membership. And we're, we're always looking at how these skills are taught in school. Um, but we're also thinking about media literacy as kind of a lifelong skill, um, which is, is really essential now to being like a 
active participant in society. You can't really get by now without understanding media and technology. Um, so we spend our days and lots of nights thinking about this stuff and, and trying to advance the field, um, working with educators. We do a conference. We host U.S. Media Literacy Week. We have a national alliance of teacher membership organizations. And yeah, pretty much everything we do is about, um, you know, building awareness, building structure around media literacy education. Wow. I have so many questions related to that, but we're going to save it because again, we're going to go back to the beginning, but thank you for level setting and explaining what that is. It's, it's, it's super helpful. Um, we're going to keep that thought in our heads because we're going to definitely talk more about it, the importance of it, and so much more. But let's go back. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town in northern New Jersey, um, and I spent um, uh my first like 10 years of life pretty idyllically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say very small town, older brother, sister, loving parents, kind of like, you know, really like what you hope for. Uh, lots of running around, lots of outside time, family, friends, neighbors. And um, and that was, kind of, I had a really like foundational decade in New Jersey and things got really interesting after that, uh, which is we uh, did something that everyone around us thought was crazy, but my father took a job in London. And so we moved from the small town in uh, in the U.S., in New Jersey, to London, big, sprawling, you know, urban mm. environment. Um, we lived there for like 18 months and we went to like 11 countries in those 18 months. And I would say that that experience really started to um, ingrain itself in me and started making me realize just how much outside of my little world there was. Um, and then we went back to New Jersey and settled into like the middle school years and then went back to London in 1988 um, when my father got transferred there again. So I kind of had this interesting, you know, childhood and teenage years where I was having this uh, kind of U.S. American small town experience balanced with this really interesting very international, um, urban, uh, experience in London. Yeah. It's, that's gotta be such a culture, like culture, not culture shock, but just like eye opening experience, especially for like a 10 year old kid. Right. Yes. It was really, um, it was surprising, I would say, um, for all of us, it kind of, um, came, you know, at that age, obviously, I don't know the conversations my parents were having for years, but it really felt like it came out of the blue. But it also kind of solidified the five of us um, as kind of a, the structure of family, you know, is that we had each other. And I'm very close with my siblings um, and particularly uh, bonded with my sister. Um, and we shared a room in New Jersey. We shared a room in London. So we were kind of like in it together. And so, um, I think the experience was helped by the fact that, you know, I had my family around me. Mm. I love the London, you know, the British things like telly, the boot, you know, all these words. What was, is there one word that like threw you off when you moved there? Like you just couldn't understand what was happening? Well, I loved the loo. I love the word the loo. There you go. Really funny that like, you know, Americans, 
I don't know. We, we're not proper, if you haven't noticed. Um, but I have to say, like, the biggest thing for me that I think is relevant in terms of the path my life took mm. is that what really struck me about London, even at a young age, was the difference in television and news. Yes. So, like, at the time, you know, before we moved to London – you know, we had very limited media, right? It was like Saturday morning cartoons, um, some, you know, Yankee games on the television on the weekends, um, maybe a, an episode of Happy Days during the right. week. But it was pretty limited and it was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And then when we went to London, I remember being really struck by certain things that I noticed. And one of them was kind of the racy um, humor, right? So it's like, I think of like Benny Hill as like the perfect example. It's just like, you didn't turn on the TV in America, in the US and see Benny Hill, but all of a sudden it was like, what is this? And then there was all this like really openness to like sexual expression. Like if you think about like the newspapers there, like we would get a newspaper delivered and the third page, there'd be like a naked woman. And it was so crazy to me. And I remember being young and being like, what the, what the heck is this? Like this shouldn't be allowed. Like (laughs) it really threw me off. And it, and it was very interesting because I don't remember, you know, we didn't never watch a ton of TV. Like I said, we were outside a lot, like it was simpler times. But then when we went to England, it was just, it was really stunning to me, even as you walk past like newsstands, like what you would see there. And I just remember that being a very um, kind of meaningful uh like noticing, like I just kept being like, wait, why am I seeing this? I shouldn't be seeing this. That could also be moving from a small town to a big city. Like you, maybe some of that was there and it was less about London and, and, um, and New Jersey, but it was, I just remember that. And I, and I think now about my path and how it's led me to media making and media, you know, literacy that I think those mo- moments were really powerful for me. Like, I think they really stuck with me. Um, and kind of help define some thoughts that I had about the media landscape, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think about the media over there. It's like, you know, the BBC, right? Yeah. Public, right? A little bit different than like the media setup we have here with like the traditional, you know, ABC, NBC. Um, You know, they have, to me, like a a more refined or um, – interesting media landscape than we do apart from all the British tabloids. I was going to say, I was like, like except, <laughs> except, except, right, except right. the British tabloids are, a, you know, a beast unto themselves. But I obviously at that time I wasn't knee deep in those, but it was, it, it was just a really interesting like change. Like there were tons yeah. of changes, obviously like food and, you know, people, you know, people that we were interacting with, but there's something that I remember so deeply about that. Yeah. Okay. So your favorite word is Lou. Mine is rubbish. Oh, I do love the rubbish. Yeah. You know, take the rubbish out. It's just so different than take the trash or take the garbage. I don't know. More proper sounding. I do have an interesting little tidbit. When I was growing up in New Jersey and I I had a very like distinct lisp when I was in like first and second grade and I would go to speech every day in school and really working on it. And then I went to London and when I came back, 
they, you know, started me again on, you know, they just assumed that I would need the speech again. And I went in and um, I was talking and, and my speech teacher from the past was like, you don't have have a lisp anymore. And so it's so interesting, I think, just being in England and being around all of these different, we went to a, an American school, but there were like 40 different nationalities, um, you know, represented within the school, uh, the student body. And I think just being around all of those different voices and, and speech patterns, I just lost my lisp. And so that was fascinating to me also. It's like things you don't realize, you know, are having impact. Interesting. So you're you're back and forth New Jersey to London, London to New Jersey. Um, during that time, what were your childhood aspirations, if you can remember? Did, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, so I would say that I was really super interested in theater. I, um, mm. I, I and writing. I would say from a very young age, I was I was writing books. You know on like loose leaf paper, you know, and I would be writing poetry on the weekends. And I always like thought of myself as like this writer, this little like, you know, six year old, seven year old writer. And then I discovered theater in high school. And I just, oh, I just fell in love. And it was just so interesting and exciting. And we lived at a small school and I mean, we lived in a small town, so went to a small school. I apologize. And um, I got cast in my first like lead role my freshman year, which was a really big deal. And it really changed the way I thought about myself, the way I thought about, you know, what I, I enjoyed doing. Um, theater was really something that kind of made me focus in a way that I don't mm. know if anything ever did. Like I was always a really like hard worker, good student, kind of like a rule follower, but there was something about theater that really excited me. Um, and just the energy of that environment was really um, very powerful for me. And again, I think, you know, the arts have always been a really important part of my life, including, you know, film and media and all of that. And so that now it look, I look back at it and I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense that I was into theater for so long, you know? Wow. Yeah. I, I think back to when I was in fourth grade, I was cast in the Wizard of Oz and I, I, I was the lion and, you know, you have to practice and learn your lines. And through that process, I, I started memorizing everybody else's. And I just remember the confidence that like being, you know, here I am fourth grade. What are you like 10 years old or something? And you're on a stage in front of people having to memorize, you know, recite these lines and scenes that you've memorized. I wish I stuck with it, um, but I didn't. So oh it's well. interesting, though, because <laughs> I remember so specifically, you know, it's funny that you never know what decisions or what choices will have like lasting impact on your life. Right. And yep. the decision of the director of that, you know, student play <laughs> to cast me in the lead freshman year was so impactful because freshmen never got the lead, right? Mm. Never, ever, ever got the lead. And there was something about being, chosen, being um, singled out as you are right for this part, regardless of how old you are, was so, it's so mind blowing to me. And really, like that decision that she made in the course of casting this little high school play really changed my life in a lot of ways and just put me on a trajectory that I, I never would have 
been on if she hadn't said, I'm going to give you this shot. Mm. And I feel like that's what all life is made of. It's like, who are the people that have given you the shot to move forward? And I can name a few of them over time who really said, no, I think you should be doing this. That has led me in that path. And I, I think that's, it's such an interesting thing. And also as someone who is in a leadership position now, also teaching the idea that I could have that power for someone that I can step up for someone in that way is really important to me. And I take, I take that very seriously because you just, you never know when one conversation or one experience is going to shift the way you think about yourself. Yeah. I have such big respect for people in positions of power that can, you know, um, influence or positively impact someone's life by recognizing a talent or a skill and saying, okay, let's, let's get you to that next stepping stone or, you know, put you here where you should be. Um, I've had a few people in my life like that as well. And I, I, I won't forget them. Um, okay. So back and forth to London. Um, what, what did your parents do for work? Uh, you know, why back and forth? What, what was your dad? Yeah. So my mom was, um, she, she took care of us and she was home with us during my childhood. And my dad was in banking. And so the jobs that he took in London were kind of promotions on his path. Um, at that time, I'm not sure what the experience is now, but uh, uh, at that time, if you were willing to kind of work overseas, it was like a really, it was very impressive to the people around you, but also your trajectory went a little faster, right? Mm. If you were willing to take those chances and represent the company in different countries. And so my dad ended up doing that with two different banks, interestingly enough, that brought us back to London and also like me back to the same school. So it was a very interesting um, experience. Like you said, just like the back and forth, back and forth. It was really, uh, it, it, now explaining it, it doesn't feel very normal, but it felt kind of normal. It was like those were just my two experiences. Having this cultural change of living in London, your, what your parents did for work and so on, um, what would you say, um, what kind of values did your parents instill in you then that you still carry with you today? So I think, you know, the biggest one is that family is absolutely 100% the most important thing, right? Mm -hmm. Family, family, family. And my mom and dad both really drove that into me and my siblings. And it was this idea that no, no matter what, friendships will change and they will um, come and go, but your family's your family. And, you know, these, this brother and sister are always going to be your brother and sister and these cousins are going to be your cousins. And, and so recognize that as kind of a central, um, foundation for my life, um, that has stayed with me obviously forever. Um, and then, you know, they really instilled my father, especially instilled kind of a value of risk and adventure, you know, the decisions that he made to to build his career and to give our family opportunity that was, um, you know, really adventurous in a lot of ways to move three, you know, relatively young, you know, humans across the Atlantic Ocean and, and not only move us there, but also say we're going to see every possible country in Europe while we're here because I don't know when we're coming back. You know, having that experience was you know, really life defining for me. And I think also, you know, my dad was 
a really hard worker, but he also played really hard. So it's like no matter. So it was like a very good balance. Like he did work a lot and he worked really hard. And, you know, um, sometimes that was hard because he wasn't around as much as we might want him to be. But when he was around and when he was, you know, with family or with us at the, you know, town pool, he was just really present and he was always like having fun. So I think we learned a lot about that kind of like you can have this passion for a career, you can work really hard, but play hard also, you know, like use your off time. You know, he played tennis, he, you know, just like everything he did was just very much like um, in the same frame of mind. And so he taught, I know for me as someone who cares deeply about my work, I still don't feel like I ever cross over to like, oh my God, I work all the time because like, I just, I inherently understand the importance of balance and all the other things that are important in life. And I know that's something that I learned early on. Yeah. Now those are amazing values to carry for sure. So now what happens you where did you well there's a lot that happens in between all of this but you go to NYU for college right did you what yeah. did you what did you go to NYU for what was your aspiration then yeah so i might back up and like kind of talk about the kind of big shift in our life um, okay we could because do that because that is exactly all of the reasons that i went to NYU kind of stem from all of that happening so so in 1988, um, my mom and I, uh, the second time we moved to London, it was just my mom and I because my siblings were older. And so at that time in 88, I was a junior in high school and we were back in New Jersey, but my father was still living in London. Okay. He was just kind of finishing up this this period of time working there. And so we were kind of settling into this like weird rhythm of us all kind of not being together. And it was getting a little bit frustrating because again, at that point, it was the second time we had done that. And we were kind of looking for some normalcy. Um, and so things changed drastically when my father um, was coming home from uh, London for Christmas that year. Um, he was aboard, uh, Pan Am 103, which as, um, you know, and uh, I think a lot of people know, um, crashed over Lockerbie, Scotland, mm. um, because of a bomb that had been placed aboard by terrorists. Um, and so it, it doesn't take much to realize that like, wow, that changed the game a little bit. And we, you know, everything, everything in my life is before and after that, that day. Um, and so whatever, um, kind of, um, you know, really, truly like no pun intended, our life really blew up that day. And we were kind of faced as a family, um, to face not only my dad not being there, but just what comes with an incident of that magnitude. And, um, it really, like I say, this is as not an exaggeration. It absolutely changed everything. It changed the way we saw the world, the way we saw ourselves, the way we understood everything. Um, and it really was uh, life-defining. And um, the before and after of our family is quite different, obviously. But I would say that at 
at the very start, my mom was very, very much committed to us kind of this tragedy bringing us together. And that was kind of like the commitment she set out to us like that night, which was this was, you know, either going to pull us apart or keep get us closer together. And I'm going to make sure it gets us closer together, which I can tell you 35 years later, it certainly has. Mm. Um, But I think what what really also happened is going from a private life, right, to becoming part of a news story was was life defining in a in a different way, but almost in a most pa- more powerful way than just losing my dad. Because when you lose someone in the way that we lost my dad, so much of your experience is about the way that that individual died and not the way that that individual lived. And that has been like the struggle over time. It's just like the fact that his death is this enormous international story that continues today. But then it's like you want to remember the pieces of just these like individual moments of him being your father. And what that did also was really change the way, you know, I I understood media and I understood Mm. the news. Because what you have to remember is that in 1988, the way we found out that my dad's plane had crashed was on breaking news on the TV. Like my mom had the TV on and a news report came like it was literally breaking news, not like what we call it today, but like cut in the middle of of a soap opera And, you know, announced that there was a a plane crash and we knew just on a piece of paper what flight he was on. And we got every piece of information only through what the news knew. So it wasn't like there was cell phones or Internet where or direct access to people at Pan Am or the airport or anything. We were finding out just like everyone else was about this thing that was you know, really just blowing up our life. And so that changed, you know, as I, as I grew and as I understood and I started to see what I was passionate in, I realized that those, those things that happened very specifically around media and the way we gathered information really impacted me uh, in, in intense ways because everything we learned about my father's death for years was the stuff that came through our screens. And yeah. I think people forget that. Like I think and I think journalists forget that a lot. I could talk a lot about that. That there's really not this understanding that like you're not only talking to the general public, you're talking to the individuals that have been personally impacted by whatever the thing is you're reporting on and the responsibility that you have to handle that delicately um, I think is is sometimes lost on the the field um, and lost just on you know news outlets in general. Um, but so so what ultimately this ends up landing me in film school because what happened is I, I started to think really deeply about what I was seeing on the screen and then also really you know passionate about theater and and just experiencing like what art can do to kind of get you out of your, your life, right? Like how it can, you just disappear into really amazing art form. And Mm -hmm. I had a very interestingly impactful 
uh, experience seeing the film Dead Poets Society when I was a senior in high school. And um, at that point, I think my dad had been gone, you know, a few months and I went to see this film. And as I walked out of the film, I realized that I had it. It was the first time that I can remember having not thought about my dad consistently for like two hours, like that I had really escaped into this film. And what that did for me was realize the power of filmmaking, the power of storytelling, the power of art, and that I wanted somehow to be part of, of that. Like I wanted to give people, no matter what they were doing, no matter what they were experiencing their life, a place to go where they felt safe and uh, they were discovering, you know, uh, art and all of that. So it was a very, like, it's just a movie, right? But there was yeah. all of these things going on. And I happened to know someone that was one of the actors in the film. And when I spoke with him about the film and his performance and just all of this stuff, he was like, I really think the things that you love about this film have a lot to do with the filmmaking, not the acting. And that's kind of when I realized like, oh, I think he's right. Like, I feel like there's so many different options in storytelling as a creator of media rather than an actor. And so that's when I decided to go to film school, which kind of then led me on this path of media production and just really wanting to like tell stories and help people tell their stories. And, um, and that's, you know, how I ended up in NYU. I, I just want to first thank you for sharing that, that story, um, your father's story. Um, Cause it, you know, it's, very powerful. And I, I appreciate you being so open and sharing that. So thank you. Um, and, you know, I also have to ask because you, you kind of mentioned it, um, you know, the, I got this message from the Oscars. If you watched it. Where, oh, every bit of it. I'm a film, yeah. I'm a film school graduate. I was going to say, if you didn't, I'd be very surprised, but you know, I watched it and I, I mean, I teared up like everybody's acceptance speech just was so touching and but what was amazing about it all was it just made me realize like because like people can you know bash the Oscars right oh you know Hollywood they're so out of touch and look at them up here patting each other on the back but the the meaning in all of it last night for me was that you know in this crazy world we live in like two three hours whatever it is can just take you away mm-hmm. right and turn off like everything and just you know get into a headspace of of a movie or or what, what the magic of the movies is all I can I could say from that. Um Yeah, absolutely. But I found it really touching when Harrison Ford and, you know, um the, I forget his name, but he was the actor that that he, was yeah. yeah, that was in the Goonies and yeah. you know, the, all of those movies and and also the um Indiana Jones films. I just I thought it was super touching. Um It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And beautiful. I just I remember just that feeling of you know, wow, like this it made me feel things, but it separated me from like kind of the the grief that was weighing on me so heavily, you know, and that I knew mm. would be waiting for me when I went back home. But there was something really powerful about that. And I think that, you know, having an opportunity to talk to someone in film, you know, you can't ever un- underestimate, like the closer you can get 
to, to the experience that you want and learn about, it's just like helpful, right. To guide yeah. you. And so it was just like a couple of like things that kind of fell in, into place that made me realize like, Oh yeah, you know, I think I want to give this a shot. Yeah, exactly. Um, we were going to talk about this much later, but I, I want to just stay on it because we're here. Um, and, and you had mentioned it and I've heard you talk about this before, like when you become the story or when you are the story. And, you know, certainly what happened to your father became, you know, here you are, you're like living this real story that's happening. And, you know, I, I, I want to ask, um, how, how did the event change your perception of the media? Like what, what clicked or what changed with the media on that? Well, you know, it was, it was, um, it's hard to know what was going on in my mind then and what is just pure decades of reflection. Right. But I, there was a significant moment. Um, so my dad was killed in December of 1988 and it wasn't until the summer of 92 that we decided to go to Scotland. So at the time of the crash, many American families went to Scotland to, to, to understand, you know, what had happened to retrieve their loved ones. And my mother felt very strongly that she didn't want any of us flying. She wanted us all home. And so we, you know, respected that. But then over the years, we became close with some of the other families that had lost um, their loved ones on the flight. And we started to hear stories about what it was like to go to Scotland and that, you know, while you might assume it's going to be a very difficult, like tragic, you know, trip, they were coming home with just incredible stories of friendship and love and just the way that the Scottish people were interacting with the victims' families. And so over time, my mom grew more interested in going. And um, I'm telling you this because this is where things shifted once again, because up until that time, the only information we had about my father's death was the story of the crash, which came to us through the news, whether it was in newspapers or, or on, on um, television. And we discovered right before we went, um, we got a call from uh, a woman who had also lost her husband on the plane. And she told my mother that she had found and met the people who found my father. And up until that moment, we, we had no, we had never thought that there were people that had found him. We had made lots of assumptions about him being in the midst of whatever we saw on the news. Right. And, mm -hmm. and what you see on the news is the crater that the fuselage um, created, the flames, the town destruction, all of that. And we had never been contacted about, you know, his remains and who found like we hadn't we had knew very little. Again, all we knew was what was coming through the screens or in the newspaper. And so that was shocking for us and even more shocking that it happened a few weeks before we were going. And to make a long story short, what ended up happening was we ended up um, finding out that um my father was found furthest from the crash, the center of the crash. And 
the he was about six miles from the center of Lockerbie on this uh, beautiful sheep farm um, called Minska Farm, uh, run by this beautiful family, the Connells. And when we met, so we were trying to debate whether we wanted to meet them. How hard would this be? What you know? What information did they have? Did we want that information? All of that. But we ended up going to the farm. And that experience of going to the farm was probably as impactful as my father's death was uh, a few years before because they told us the actual story of my father's death. And my father, you know, came to, you know, came to his end on a beautiful Scottish um, sheep farm, um, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. He was uh, relatively unscathed to the point where they checked to see if he was still breathing. Um, he was found 20 minutes after the crash when we had the la- what we knew is that he hadn't been identified for 10 days. Um, they had, you know, shielded him from reporters and made sure no press, you know, saw him and they essentially took care of of him right. I mean, literally within 20 minutes of the, of the crash. And that story was so different than the story we had heard on the news. Um, Mm. it was a, a different universe of this tragedy and it was so unbelievably like mind blowing to us a, because, you know, we, we had the opportunity to like, the first thing this woman said to me was you look so much like your father. She had never seen him except that night. Wow. And the idea that she could give me that is like, you can't even, there's no words, right? There's no words. But what I ended up feeling was really mad at the media and the news, like really frustrated that, also of my education that I didn't know I was supposed to be questioning things that I saw and that I had just made us, we had made lots of assumptions that what we were seeing was my father's story. Surely it was part of my father's story. He was part of that tragedy, but his individual experience was so different from what we were seeing on the news. And the fact that we found these individuals who had cared for him It was just not, it's not what you saw. That wasn't the story that the news was telling. So Mm. that changed the way I thought about the news. It made me think about why they covered these these tragedies the way that they covered them, why these other parts, these human parts of these stories don't get as much airtime, why... um, why there aren't systems in place to, or like education in place where you're starting to question and think about things critically. And um, that led us first and foremost to starting to tell our story, right? So Mm -hmm. we became, we decided like, okay, if we're going to be in the news, we're going to be in the news and, and telling our story. And so we actively pursued opportunities to share this particular story because we found what the Scottish family did for us was so like it brought I always talk about how it was like things got really dark after my father was killed and it was like they switched the light on again it was like oh okay like there were real people on the other end of this that really deeply cared about the people that ended up in their lives you know because of this tragedy and so 
really made me think deeply about how news is covered, why certain things get a lot of airtime, and why I had never learned how to question media. Yeah. No, it's it's that's such a powerful story and you know, it's almost like where you are now, uh, you know, because of all of this, it, 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 is media literacy like your life's mission or purpose? I think that it might be. And I, it took me a while to get there. Like it really, um, you know, I was in production, so I'd gone to film school. I had worked in television production, um, worked at in children's TV and was really on and parallel to that was doing a lot of like news and documentary and you know, about this personal story. So it was like I was working in media and also um, really actively getting our story out there. I did a BBC documentary around the 10th anniversary. And and so these things were happening in parallel. And I ended up going back to graduate school because I wanted to dig a little deeper into the impact media has on us as humans. And then it evolved into discovering like this thing called media literacy that I didn't know existed. And it was kind of like, wait a minute. I think that is, that is my passion. Like, because I really do, I really, really do believe that if I had been more media literate, my experience of my father's death would have been different. I would have not taken everything at face value I would have not um, made assumptions, and I and I think my experience right after and the years after, just it would have been different, and that's a very powerful thing to kind of come to, and so it was just kind of all like it all kind of led to this this idea, and then it was there was just a couple of opportunities that arose for me to start teaching like. Uh, media skills to young students who also wanted, they also wanted to learn some media literacy skills. So it's kind of like things kind of to come together in some way. Um, and then just kind of led me to this organization. And I was a member of this organization for some time uh, for my first conference for Namely that I went to was 2003. And I didn't mm. start working here till 2012. So I was just kind of like, in the space and in the community. Uh, and then, you know, this just kind of solidified my passion. And I, I do feel like there's, there's no, there's no doubt that I feel like this is what's been calling me, you know, since I was 17. And, um, and so I feel like I have, it's not just like a career or a job, like it's definitely feels like my mission. Yeah. I, I mean, we hear that word a lot, like, purpose, right? Companies with a purpose or people with yeah. a purpose. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, an, it's an incredible story. Um, and so throughout your career, right, you, you were first involved a little bit, you said in 2003, and now here you are, the executive director. We, we hear this word fake news or misinformation, disinformation a lot, especially since 2016. I won't get political. Um, but it does, it does make me wonder, you know, uh, you know, should we take everything the news says to us with at, at face value or should we demand more or ask more or what my father calls right critical thinking mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um so you know i i guess 
you know, the news today, even like to some degree, divides people, right? Depends what channel you watch and, and, and those things. I, I guess, how do we fix it? Because I don't know if it's because I'm getting older and I pay more attention to the news or am I paying more attention to the news because it's everywhere, on my Twitter feed and, you know, you can't really escape it. So I'm wondering, you know, how do we, how do we like fix this and get people to think more critically about their information? Because I have some, you know, I'll admit, I have some heated conversations sometimes with friends of mine who, you know, believe something they saw online. And I'm like, I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, that's not, it's like, you know, a fairy tale. It's like Pinocchio or something. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, where are you getting your information from and so forth? So I guess my question is, it's a long-winded way of saying, how do we, how do we what teach do we people? Do? What do we do? Yeah. What, help. <laughs> what do we do here? Yeah. So I think just some context, I'm, I like, I'm tend to be a pretty positive person. So I want to just like open up this answer with some positivity. So Perfect. first- the fact that we're even asking these questions is progress. So my organization has existed since 1997. And until 2016, nobody was returning our calls, right? And so the advent of fake news, I shouldn't say the advent of fake news, because that's been around forever. But into the cultural conversation, the way it happened in 2016, um, really, um, put a light, like shown a light on media literacy skills in a way that moved the conversation about media literacy from academic spaces or education spaces and pushed it into cultural conversation. And that it was an enormous, enormous shift for us in the media literacy space. And what it also allowed us to do was move beyond just, I need to prove that this is important to how are we going to do this? And that getting over that hump of why you should think this is important can't be underestimated. That was the hump we were all trying to get over for decades, right? Mm -hmm. So the good news is we are finally asking the questions and paying attention um, to media literacy in a way uh, that we need to. Um, we're seeing incredible progress in you know, policy shifts and the numbers of teachers teaching it, the commitment from the education space, the focus from every place, from government to tech companies to, you know, uh, education leaders recognizing how important these skills are for, for the humans in our lives. So this is all good, right? What we also have to recognize is that our, the, the human communication structure has changed at a rate and in a way that is unprecedented. The world, the way we communicate as humans has inherently changed within the last 20 years. That is astoundingly fast, like astoundingly fast. So part of what we're feeling right now is that speed and that overwhelm, right? Is, and of course we're overwhelmed. Like that is from when we were growing up to now, the change in these media systems, the change in our communication systems is so profound that of course we're kind of left going, wait, what, what is happening? So with that said, 
how do we solve the problem, right? Like, how do we, we as humans created these systems and created this technology to move things faster, to give us access to more information, to make our lives more convenient, all of that. We did this, we asked for it, right? And so now what do we do about this? And, and you know, it's not surprising that my organization, me personally, believes that like media literacy skills are our first line of defense. Like that is the bottom line. If if we are not teaching people how to navigate the media ecosystem, we are doing a disservice um, that we cannot underestimate the impact of that. And right now, we don't have you know, we have a lot of really, really strong work going on around the country, lots of really passionate educators and policymakers moving things forward, but it is not a national priority. And so what would you expect from a, you know, from a population that for all intents and purposes has not been educated in a way that helps them critically think and effectively communicate in this environment, of course, we're going to see some of what we're seeing, right? We yeah. don't know how to do this. And so media literacy is really like that front line of defense. We have to be teaching it from the earliest ages. We have to also recognize that there is continuing education that is needed outside of formal education. We are no longer in a situation where you can graduate high school or graduate undergrad and feel like you have the skills you need to succeed for the rest of your life. Like that time is past because technology will continue to evolve and we need kind of some infrastructure on how do we continually learn about all of these changes in these incredibly impactful systems that, you know, we kind of are swimming in. And so I think, um, we talk a lot about regulation, right? We t we've been talking a lot as a society about, you know, the tech companies um, and their accountability and, you know, like I said, regulation and all that stuff is really important. But if you want to, if you're asking me, like, what do we need to fix this problem? I don't know how we do it without taking a hard look at our education system and assessing whether we're actually giving students the skills they need to not only succeed, but actually lead the world they're going to be leading um, in the next, you know, uh, 10, 20 years. And so to me, the answer is media literacy education. Um, it is not like the only answer. We obviously have to think about all of these different areas. And it's a multi, you know, there's lots of constituencies there that need to be involved. But if we're not talking about education, like, how are we yeah. ever going to solve this? Like, of course we have to teach people different skills, you know? Amen. Yeah. I, I agree because, you know, and, and those skills and I, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about this too, where it's like those conversations. Yeah. They can happen in institutions and classrooms, but can also be at home. Right. Where yeah. I just remember when I was a kid, it was like my news consumption was the local paper. Right, reading, yeah, sure, the the big world stories, but also the the local coverage about the cat that was in the tree or whatever, and then you know got my news from like the six o'clock or the eleven o'clock broadcast, and that was really it. You know, I didn't get an alert on my cell phone. Um, yeah. So just a really different environment. Mm -hmm. 
I want to learn more about you as a person. Um, okay. You have such great energy, and I want to know about the habits, choices, and things you do that make you tick. So tell me about – I'm always interested in people's daily routines. Oh, um, okay. Do you have, like, a daily routine? You know, some people get up, they take, like, an ice-cold shower. Others do, like, you know, 20 minutes of meditation. What's your daily routine? So I would say, and I always get worried about daily routine. I'm going to say most days, this is the what I do because um, I stopped putting the pressure on daily a few years ago when I turned like I'm 51 now. And by the time I was like done with my forties, I'm like, it's okay if I only do this five times a week. So I would say most days I wake up, I walk my dog, I come back and I write in my journal for I write three pages. It's an uh, you know, an, a daily practice that I had been doing for decades. Um, three pages of just like stream of consciousness. And then I always read in the morning some fiction. I always sit, you know, after I write and I just sit and read whatever book I'm reading. I read a lot um, and a lot of books that are fiction and just like take me out of like all of this space. <laughs> and then most mornings I walk. I take a walk every day um, and I listen to some news podcasts. I might make a phone call, but it's just like my daily kind of meditation. And, um, I also do some yoga. Um, that's not every day, but the re my kind of like read, write, walk is like my daily routine. I got to do that. Those three things every single day. Um, and you know, I also tend to, um, prefer reading at night. You know, we, we, I will do some TV and, and of course I enjoy my social media, but, I think reading has like, as I've gotten older, reading has really become a meditation for me. Um, I just love to have that book at the side of my bed that I, you know, reach in the morning and also at night. I was just going to ask, what do you do to dis to do to disconnect? And it sounds like the reading takes you there. Yeah. 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 And the walking, it's a little harder now. So I have an 18 year old and a 20 year old and they um, my daughter is based in LA and even though my son is here, they're both in the music industry. So their hours are very different from mine. <laughs> and I find that my phone is kind of next to me, um, more than I really want it to be because of them. Right. Like in the sense that like, I want them to be able to get to me and we don't, you know, we're not using a landline. And sometimes I, you know, I hate that. <laughs> like I kind of don't even want my room, but I also feel like so glad that they can reach out to me and figuring out like I can do not disturb everyone else, but them like, no, yeah. that's there. So like, I want to say that I completely unplug, but the phone is there because, you know, my daughter's three hours earlier than me. And sometimes she needs me as I'm like fading to sleep and I want to, you know, be there for her. So, um, and I also think sometimes just walking my dog and, and just getting out a lot and I live in New York city. So walking is just, you know, like a way of life. And, and that really works for me. Nice. Where do you find inspiration? What, what inspires you? Um, my kids really inspire me. Both of my kids are creative souls and um, my son, neither one of them chose college. They're both pursuing music as their career. And my daughter is a singer songwriter and my son is in a, a band and they're both doing well. You know, they're really 
you know, getting a following and really building a career for themselves. And they are so driven and so passionate um, and so unbelievably creative and talented that, oh my gosh, they inspire me every single day. Um, I also do get inspiration from reading um, and from, you know, watching films, watching you know, I just, I'm kind of obsessed with storytelling and how people tell their stories and, and how, like, I love seeing things that I've like never seen before, which is like why I loved some of the films that were nominated, like every thing everywhere all at once, like just seeing something that like, Oh my God, I've never seen that before. Just inspired yeah. me. I also like to learn, like I do masterclass, like I'm listening to Roxane Gay's like writing for social change now and it inspires me. And so I don't know, like definitely feel like I'm lucky in the sense that I'm very just naturally curious, which keeps me kind of excited, you know? Nice. Yeah. I think being curious is one of the best things to to be, right? Just, yeah. you know, it's a big world. Um, and I'm always interested in learning um things about leadership from our guests. You know, you're the executive director at Namely. Um, What would you say your leadership style is like? So I always laugh at this question because I would love to see what the people that work with me feel. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) um, I am a people-first leader. (laughs) Like, I am wholly aware that happy employees are the best employees and I want my employees to have balance and I want them to have flexibility and um, I want them to feel like I, it's an environment that respects their life, not just their abilities and expertise. And so I try to create that. I'm, I think I'm a very open leader and I try very hard to empower people around me. I, I, obviously don't have trouble speaking up. Um, but I know sometimes as a leader, the best thing you can do is listen and, and kind of keep your mouth shut. And I'm, I'm trying to practice that more as I get older. I think, um, for me, I always try to be surrounded. I always try to be surrounded by people that have different skills than me and that are smarter than me. Like, I, I, as a leader, I feel like you should be the least smart person in the world, like, <laughs> yeah, in the, in the room, I should say, like, I feel like being a part of a group in which you are lifting each other up is really important. And like, my goal as a leader is to like, make sure I'm surrounded by people I can learn from. Um, and I think a lot of what leaders should do is, is lift people up. Um, and inspire people. Um, and I would say the last thing I would say is I hate like micromanaging people. Like I just really want to trust people and, and put my faith in them. And, and more times than not, they always, they always, um, deliver, you know, like people just want to be trusted and, and, um, surrounding yourself with passionate people is really important. Um, but I think for me, it's just like making sure that I just trust everyone that I'm connected with, you know? That's that's great, great leadership advice and skills there. Okay, two questions on the flip side of the coin of each other. I'll ask you the first one. What What is the one thing throughout your career that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think the way that Namely has grown 
over the 10, you know, I'm in my 11th year and Mm. I've, you know, when I started, there were, you know, 300 members and we have close to 8,000 now. And, you know, I, I was getting paid like $12,000 a year when we started. And now I have five full-time employees that are all getting, you know, pretty good, you know, nonprofit salaries. And, and so I've been able to grow the organization. And, and I think for me that it's been such a slow process that it's hard for me to sometimes notice like how much change there's been. But when I start to break it down, it's like, I'm really, really proud of the growth. And, and, and I always felt like namely should be at the table for all the really big conversations around media literacy, whether it was with government entities or tech companies, you know, policy people. And I feel like we're at that point where we really are respected as a thought leader. And that is something I'm super, super proud of. One very specific thing that I'm thrilled to be able to say is that I, you know, launched the first ever U.S. Media Literacy Week and that it's now in its ninth year. So to me, that's something that no matter where I go in my career, the fact that I can say I was the person that led that is something I'm super, super proud of because it's it's now our biggest, our biggest moment as an organization every year. When is that? It's at the end of October. It's part of Global Media and Information Literacy Week. So it's October 23rd to 27th this year. Great. I, I ask because I'm on the board of directors for the Public Relations Society here in Connecticut. So um, I'm going to make sure we know about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, please, please. Okay, and on the flip side of the coin, you know, the F word, failure, and it, and it, and this is, you know, um, one of my favorite questions because I always get such surprising answers out of it. What is your favorite failure? And by that, I mean something that you were sure about and and it, and it failed. But what was the lesson learned or the positive thing you took from that? I have a really interesting relationship with failure because I don't really believe in it. Like I don't really believe in failure and maybe it's the 30 years of therapy or maybe it's the, you know, all the reading I'm doing uh, over my life. But I feel like the, everything is a lesson. Like, so even failure is kind of the, the point, right? Like you're never going to do everything right. But if you don't try to do this and try to do that and try to do that, one of them's going to stick, but that means the others don't. And I, Oh, I'm a huge baseball fan. And I always go by the, like, you know, who are the best hitters in baseball? They're only getting a hit every, you know, three times, every 10 times they're up, you know? And so to me, that doesn't mean like that they failed seven other times. It's like, so I I look at failure as 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 learning and part of the journey and I can name a thousand failures. <laughs> like there are so many failures whether <laughs> it's hiring the wrong people, trying an initiative that didn't work, um having a, you know, you know, having a really difficult bo- board member that I'd spoke to you know, probably not in the way I should have spoke to them, you know, X amount of years ago. Like there's a million things that I think could be categorized as failures. Um, but I don't think that I, 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 I don't think of them that way because I think that that just taught me 
what not to do, what I, you know, what I can learn um, from that. And, um, and there's been some, like, I'm trying to think of the biggest ones, because there's, I mean, there's tons of mistakes, like you cannot run a nonprofit, you cannot, um, you know, do work that is driven by passion, and not stumble sometimes, like you just can't. And so, and I, I feel like I've always been that way, even with my kids, it's just like, just don't hold on to your mistakes, um, learn from them and like move forward. I know that sounds like so cheesy, but I really, like, I really do. It's just like, no, you just learn from them. There were lessons, you know, an an amazing, well, response answer, however you want to say it, because I, I think so many people, and, and, and I, well, I love the way you answered that because I'm, I'm of the same mindset. You know, you have to try things to see what's going to work, right? Nobody intentionally, quote unquote, fails. And I, you know, I have too. I've stumbled so many times in, in different ways, but have always taken something away from that to yeah. say, okay, you know what? Maybe I should have thought of this or, wow, that that was a factor I didn't think about or whatever the circumstances are. So I love that, you know, I think we as a society, especially in the business world, um, have to get away from the fear of failure Mm -hmm. because, you know, um, I work in public relations and we work with a lot of amazing companies. But, you know, sometimes you work with a client that is so fixated on something working. And the mm-hmm. truth is, you know, well, yeah, we can do all of this, but, you know, we're not entirely sure at the end of the day if it will work. Mm-hmm. And that that sometimes can be really damaging for people to hear, like, well, then why am I working with you or whatever the case is. So, and I think sometimes, like, recognizing when something isn't working is an enormous part of leadership. Yes. Is being able to say, okay, you know what? We tried this, but, like it's not working and we can either continue to like hit our, you know, heads against the wall or we can just, you know, take the loss and, and learn from it. And I think that, um, you know, just always trying to recognize that like mistakes are not kind of a four letter word, right. It's part of the process. Yes. Yep, exactly. And back to baseball, that's why, you know, you'll put a pinch hitter in or switch the lineup, yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I find that I've learned everything I needed to know in life. I've learned either from watching baseball or film school, like film school taught me everything I needed. Like those skills are so transferable to every part of my life, even yeah. in motherhood. It's like being able to produce like the schedule for the week and just understanding all these pieces and stuff. And also knowing what to do when all of the plans go to hell, like that's all filmmaking is right. So yep. to me, it's like, and also like less like there's lots of life lessons in baseball. Yeah. If you could go back in time, and meet your 21-year-old self or 18-year-old self, what kind of advice would you give her? Well, I mean, my dad died when I was 17. So either one of those ages, I would tell them that it's going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. It's going to be okay. And there's no end. I think that's the thing, like, when – you lose someone that you love. Um, 
like for the first time and you're just like, okay, at one point I won't be grieving or at one point I will be on the other side of this. And then at some point you realize like, no, this is just, this is who I am. Um, and I heard someone speak uh, about grief, like it's a limp, you know, like you're always just like when you have surgery and your like leg hurts when it rains or whatever, grief is like that. And, and so it's like how you walk with that limp and, and what that limp says about you. And so I would just, I would, absolutely want my 18 and 21 year old self to just know like you're gonna get through this you're gonna be better for it and uh it's just it's you know ultimately gonna make you a better person there we go and this final question i have guy raz who you may know um, yeah of course hosts the show then i listen to i love it and i'm I'm stealing his questions so hopefully (laughs) i don't get in trouble but um how much of your success has been pure luck and how much is it from your leadership and intelligence? I, it's probably 50, 50, probably 50, 50. I would say the one thing that I am most proud of is that I say yes a lot in my career, like in, in the trajectory of my career. And there's a a long time in there where a lot of those yeses didn't actually match up with the last yes or the one that came after. And it felt very like miscellaneous, but it all led to the right place. And I didn't know it then, right? Like then it seemed really chaotic. Now it's like, oh my gosh, I needed all of these varied experiences to get this job that is like my my work, you know, my life's work. And so to me, it's, um, that's just important to note. Wait, I just Mm -hmm. lost the question though. How much of your success has been pure? Have you been lucky or is it all from your luck, um, (laughs) plays a huge part of success, certainly in the people that I knew and the opportunities that I was afforded. I mean, I've lived, you know, a privileged life. And, and so the people I've met along the way were able to, you know, guide me, help me. And and that wouldn't have happened if I didn't live a pretty privileged life. Um, but I do think that it's like the one question, one thing in that question is instincts aren't part of that. Mm. And I would say that instincts more the, more than luck and more than, uh, hard work also like, it's like a third each, you know, cause sometimes you just gotta like, know, like trust your gut and say yes and see, and just keep moving. Even if you're not sure exactly what direction that you're going in. Um, so I do think that played a role in just trusting my gut a lot of the time. But yeah, I, I think that anyone that, you know, doesn't accept that luck plays a role is is kidding themselves. But I also work pretty hard. So and I do a lot of work on myself, which I'm proud of. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I wasn't joking. I've been in therapy for like 30 years and my journal writing and, you know, all of that is is to kind of like continue to use my like, you know, self-improvement muscle, you know? And yep. so that has to, ha- that has to help me, right? It has to. So again, I think it's a little bit of all of that. Very good. Yeah. Intuition plays a huge role for sure. Well, you've been incredible. I, I feel like I could talk to you for another like two hours or something, but um, anything you'd like to add or say before we, we, we part? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I just really appreciate um, the conversation and really appreciate the opportunity to think about these things because you don't often like, think about your own journey. Um, and it, it's been good for me. But I do think that what I can say is that like, what is like the advice that like I offer my students about their trajectory and their life? And it's just like, say yes, you know, say yes to opportunities, say yes to the meeting, say yes to the, you know, lunch. You just never know who you're going to meet. You never know uh, what connections you're going to make or, you know, and just, you know, say yes and read a lot. There we go. (laughs) Just read a lot, people. (laughs) Pick up a book, right? Pick up a book. (laughs) Well, thank, thank you so much, Michelle. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Derek. Really appreciate it. And there we have it. That's Michelle Chula Lipkin, the executive director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. I hope you enjoyed her powerful and insightful story here on Upfront. Now, if you want to find out more about Namely and Michelle, please visit namely.net. That's N A M L E.net. Upfront is brought to you by Mason. Creatively obsessed and fixated on results, Mason leverages technology, entertainment, design, and culture to create bold, fearless ideas. It's time to make your brand more valuable. Challenge accepted. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can send an email to hello at mason23.com or check out our website, mason23.com. That's all I've got for this one. Until the next time, we'll see you. Take care.